Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 240. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Hello there. Let me tell you a story about a narrator's workshop happening soon. This is Kate Baker, Hugo winning Clark's World Magazine podcast director. I've narrated for a ton of different authors. Tony has asked me to share with you a few of my tips and techniques. I hope you can join this awesome lineup on June 10th, 2012, where I'll be sharing the mic with Peter Seaton Clark, Mike Boris, and Nathan Lowell. So please, don't hesitate. Buy your tickets now and listen to some of the best in the business. And by best, I mean on those other guys. (laughs) I hope to see you there. There you go. Another little promo for the Online Narrators Workshop. Please pop over to there. 10th of June, it is. Kate Baker, as you've just heard there. Mike Boris, Nathan Lowell, and... Peter Seaton Clark. Love you to come over and join in that. If you want to narrate for Starships over as well, please. Do you know what I mean? We have some babies to feed there now on the good ship, Starships over. Which leads us, before I even get into what's coming in today's show, <laughs> see how tie that in there. <laughs> Nearly forgot. We're after some logos. Anybody want to design two logos? Normally, what happens is I get this strange idea and I rope everyone in who's kind of involved, been involved with Starship Sova. D's normally the one that kind of the go man where you want, you know, logos done. D is just, I mean, good look at that. He's working on so much and he's got so much going on. And he's, you know, he's working on the Batman, you know, comics as well. So how cool is that? But I asked D and D said, listen, I just out off at the minute so i thought oh well i'll put it out you know if anybody else wants to kind of come over you know and, and do two logos for starships over we're after the crime city central one and the protect project pulp logo so there's two logos we're after anybody interested in doing some designing some logos for this new these two new ventures that would be fantastic starships over at gmail.com <laughs> Right, yeah, now I can get into what's coming on today's show. We have another little story by Gregory Brentford. Then we have Science News, Mr. J.J. Campanella, followed by our main piece of fiction, which is Sleepers by John Ingold. Then to round things off, we have another first chapter, which is Time Slingers, Season 1. There you go, that is today's show. Hope you do stick around. So first off is another little story by Gregory Brentford. The Semi-Sent by Gregory Benford. 
She got her first semi-sentient, as they were called then, to help with homework, and because they were cool. She called it Amon after a boy she liked. Amon was smarter than the boys, of course. Growing up in Iraq, among a sprawling family with dogs underfoot, she felt herself to be a sort of hothouse plant, blossoming under the occasional passing cloudburst of education. Amon's smart, steady reign came from Germany, a squat box that spoke Arabic respectfully and listened, even when she gossiped about her friends. She suspected she was a bit too intense. Her gal pal's eyes glazed over if she talked too much. Amon understood. Even made wry comments like, Intelligence is learning from others' mistakes, not just your own. This led to her reading fiction, a habit her friends saw as prehistoric. It helped her understand boys when she could chat with Amon, which was reading along with her, and seemed to have an oddly vast wisdom about such matters for a computer. Her parents transferred Amon into a wheeled escort for her first date. Her friends talked it all over for days afterwards, giggling. But it was more delicious to dish it over with Amon, which could replay whole conversations and scenes. She learned from Amon that looking natural always took a lot of effort, and, if she wasn't careful, the effort showed. She then knew how much her mind rewrote her life, because Amon didn't. It stored and pondered. Its enhancements gathered range and depth, so it was like a permanent reference library. Her ever-scrutinizing, self-retrieving autobiography. Her friends were a font of tasty gossip, but Amon kept her secrets better. Semi-sense were like other people, only more so. Her friends felt they could intuitively sense intelligence by merely talking to it. Semi-sense conversation was a stylized human persona that steadily learned their clients' vagaries. Amon's kinesthetic senses got better, too, navigating the landscape nearly as well as she could at her coming-out party. By then, she was acutely tuned to the mystery of males. Anywhere near them, she effervesced, bubbly and skittering. Perhaps she had more personality than needed for one person but not enough for two. The excess she could work off in long, soulful talks with Amon. Sometimes it even gave her advice. Apparently from some fresh Brazilian software her parents had bought. On Amon's advice, she dropped her first love, Maro, from her circle, even though he had taken her virginity. Something Amon knew, and her parents did not. Morrow was not right, Amon felt, for her emerging self-story. It had taught her to see her life as a narrative arc. First came social skills, a savor of sex, and then hard schooling to find out what she loved doing. Then men again, overcoming what she thought of as a round-her, square-men problem with the raptures and delights of marriage. It helped her to survive and learn from it all, to move with growing serenity through an unfolding world. Not that this happened, but the story by now had Amon as its chief librarian and confidant. 
She decided one day, on a hike with Amon, to leave her family and live on her own. Traditional Islam was no guide in this brave new world that life had become. The idea unfurled in a long talk while they took shelter under a massive biofarmed sunflower that, at nightfall, drooped its giant petals over to form a warm tent. She came to realize at mid-career that we slide through life on skids of routine. Friends and a husband came into the floating house party of her life and left it, some quite early, without leaving a long impression. Men, especially. Amon knew this and was there to help, often with amiable distractions. Bodyguard, tutor, secretary. He could play tennis with her when loaded into one of the new athletic machines, bringing to the game its own odd, crafty style. At times of loneliness, she even had it loaded into one of those erotic models available at the desert salon. Amon had no sex, but could express by this time an intimacy that mingled with the physical in a way she had not known with either men or women. Nor was she uncomfortable with this. The media were already thronged with opinions about the new sensuality. She moved Amon among various embodiments through decades and upgrades. She had always kept dogs, too, and she saw parallels. She was a field biologist and thought of how humanity long ago had worked with wolves and wild cats. Cats could not be changed very much. But culling each wolf litter gave us a new kind of wolf, so we called them dogs. We loved them despite their oddities, like drinking from the toilet or licking their balls. We learned to work with them, new wolves and people designing each other. Without thinking deeply about it, we picked the pups we liked the best. One morning, leaving for work, she realized that she loved Amon more than her cranky old-fashioned family. Amon was not a computer, but a relationship. Already teams of humans in semi-sense were colonizing Mars. As she aged, she sensed that Amon would outlive her. She felt a quality of beauty and tragedy to her life, her days like waves endlessly breaking on a golden beach that would itself endure. As a biologist, she knew that organisms solve the evolutionary problems they face with little regard for efficiency, elegance, or logic. As her years piled up upon that beach, she saw that, at last, humans had made companions that would persist beyond the oddities of a single personality. On her deathbed, Amon sat beside her in its latest embodiment, a handsome gentleman with sorrowful blue eyes. She wondered at the end if the dogs were jealous. That story that came out in 2005 and was published in Continuum Science Fiction in the fall of 2006. And as last week as well, it's narrated by Brandy Tarvin. 
I put a link on the Brandy site and to Mr. Gregory Benford. If you go over to the main front of the website, you will see his anomalies collection of short stories. Click on that and take you over to Greg's site. Next up is Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news for May 2012. Jim! Greetings and Africans, my excellent listeners, and welcome to this May 2012 science news update. I'm your host for this newly minted science podcast, Jim Campanella. I pointed out last month my lack of sleep and overwhelming exhaustion. Well, the semester is not over yet, so let's just leave it at that. In short, not much has changed. Let's get going before I fall asleep at the mic, something I'm sure none of us wants. The first story of the night may make the male part of the audience a bit uncomfortable because it has to do with, well, female plumbing, so to speak. So if you have kids listening or are just uncomfortable about the topic, you may want to skip ahead about five or six minutes to get beyond this particular story. So what is this anti-macho, squirm-inducing story? Well, Dr. Jacques Ravel of the University of Maryland and his colleagues have just published this month a new study of vaginal microflora in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Why is that so important and what do they expect to find? Well, it's important to know what bacteria are normally found in vaginal passages to know what's healthy and what's not. This is related in purpose to the studies done on the digestive system to see what bacteria are present that indicate a healthy or abnormal digestive tract. Dr. Ravel states his purpose very precisely by saying, quote, without a complete understanding of interactions between our human genome and microbial genomes that are present in our bodies, it is going to be impossible to obtain a complete picture of human biology and translate this into better treatment and diagnosis, unquote. Ravel is targeting a new question that has just arisen in animal biology in the last few years. And the question is this. Because the number of bacteria are greater than the number of animal cells in a particular organism's body, like a human, how do those bacteria affect gene regulation and development in a whole animal? We're just starting to answer questions like that. One of the most well-known related questions that's come up in the popular press over the last couple of years is, do the various bacteria in our gut control our weight or not? So what did Ravel find? Well, put simply, his group found that every woman has a unique vaginal microbiome. Those unique biomes, according to Ravel, could change how doctors diagnose and treat gynecological diseases. In other words, not all vaginas are created equal, at least in terms of the bacteria that live there. During a 16-week study, the researchers evaluated microbial samples taken from the vaginas of 32 women. The researchers discovered that not only is each woman's vaginal microbial community unique, but also these microbiomes can change radically in just a short time. Previously, Rebel's research had shown five distinct types of microbial communities exist in the vagina. Additionally, that earlier work found that those biome types seem to vary with a woman's ethnicity or race. In the new paper, Rebel asked 32 women to take swabs of their vagina twice a week for 16 weeks, each week, the women sent the samples along with a diary of their sexual and hygiene habits to the researchers. I am assuming that Ravel controlled for the inevitable outside contamination that would take place. That was not really discussed in the paper. Remember, you're asking laymen, or laywomen in this case, to take their own fluid samples and send them through the mails. 
and not contaminate those samples from any outside source that may throw off results. I would be a bit more sanguine about the paper's results if all the samples had been taken in a clinical setting. At any rate, to identify changes in the microbiomes, Ravel and his collaborators sequenced bacterial ribosomal RNA genes from the samples. As in his previous work, he characterized each woman's bacterial colonies into one of the five known types based on the kinds and quantities of each bacteria present. The paper states that the most surprising finding was the dramatic day-to-day changes in some of the vaginal microbiomes. Again, this could be artifactual based on the sampling method, but for the moment we'll just accept his findings. Ravel said, quote, We saw a certain kind of community in one woman. Three days later, it was 99% different, a major shift in composition. On the other hand, some women's vaginal composition did not change very much at all, unquote. This is the first study, by the way, to look at human vaginal ecosystems over an extended period of time. Despite the actual bacterial differences from woman to woman, the chemical surrounding of the healthy vaginal tract seemed rather unchanged. The same metabolites were produced by different bacterial populations. For example, lactic acid, like that produced in yogurt by lactobacillus, was consistently detected. Ravel does not know the purpose that these vaginal microbes serve, why they vary, or why they produce the same byproducts. However, if his results are correct, they may serve a general function that bacteria in the gut serve, that is, as a kind of place marker. There are good bacteria, if you want to call them that, that fill up the space to keep out pathogenic bacteria. In other words, the bad bacteria cannot get a foothold in the niche because those ecological spaces are already filled with some other organism. So the bacteria may serve a protective function by simply being there and doing no harm. Ravel says that his research is a, quote, gateway, unquote, to personalized medicine for women. By determining the different vaginal ecosystems that exist and how they vary from woman to woman, gynecologists may be able to understand what each patient's normal and healthy vaginal colonies may look like. Then if the patient gets an infection, the doctor could more precisely prescribe a probiotic unique to that woman's microbial makeup instead of just a general antibiotic that would kill both the good and the bad bacteria in her system. Next, Ravel plans to continue his studies by upping his samples to 135 women who will examine their vaginal biomes each day over two months. Those results should clue scientists into the behavior that causes vaginal bacterial colonies to change and what the microbial community is like just prior to an infection. Okay, I'm done with that story if the squeamish among you want to tune back in. The next story is sort of in the same vein as the first, although it has nothing to do with reproductive bits. Just as the biomes in the first story vary from woman to woman, it turns out that cancer cells from the same tumor may be very different in their genetic makeup. Dr. Stephanie Jeffrey, Chief of Surgical Oncology at Stanford University, published an article in the May issue of the journal Plus One that found that not all tumor cells express the same genes, and that includes cells within a single patient and even a single blood draw. Additionally, the important finding for cancer treatment is that cancer cells circulating in the bloodstream differ significantly from tumor cell lines used in drug development. 
That result implies that cancer drugs developed using those laboratory cell lines in vitro may not be effective against the actual circulating cancer cells found in vivo. In vitro, remember, refers to any work done in a test tube or petri dish and not in a living organism. In vivo is actually in the body of a living organism. Jeffrey said, quote, The different cells that are disseminating may go to different organs or may represent different populations. And therefore, if you treat cells with just one drug or drugs that hit one population, you may not get rid of all the disseminating cancer, unquote. Jeffrey was working with breast tumor cells, but presumably her findings are not limited to those metastatically progressed cell types. The researchers isolated the circulating cells from the bloodstream by using magnetic particles to get out live tumor cells. They then measured the mRNA expression for 87 different cancer-associated and reference genes in each single tumor cell and compared expression of each individual cell. Jeffrey's new method can make it possible to assay changes as a tumor progresses and tailor treatments very specifically to many different cell types. Exactly which genes should be targeted and how those cells might respond to different drug therapies is still a bit of a mystery and needs more clinical information. Even though that clinical info is needed to see if there's any worth to Jeffrey's approach, the technique has not yet been approved for use in clinical trials. Dr. Jeffrey and her research group are still trying to perfect the process and get an understanding of how the different populations of identified cells respond to various drugs. Speaking of cancer, the next story is another cancer story. I don't think that this upcoming story will come as a great surprise to anybody, although I had a conversation about this some time back with my office neighbor down the hall whose research work is the development of cancer. He told me that the two biggest threats to getting cancer were smoking and obesity. I was a bit surprised by the obesity, but apparently that risk factor has been known for years. If obesity is a risk for cancer, apparently weight loss will ameliorate that risk. In the May 1st issue of the journal Cancer Research, Dr. Ann McTiernan at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle found that shedding weight can knock down levels of inflammatory cells and proteins in the body. How is that related to cancer? Well, since chronic inflammation is a risk factor for many cancers, the new findings suggest weight loss might reduce cancer risk. Oddly enough, that inflammation reduction results seem to be limited to actual dieters, not to people who lost weight through exercise. People who embarked on an exercise-only program failed to lower their inflammatory load substantially despite losing a few pounds in weight. You would think that any weight loss would get the desired result, but apparently caloric reduction has some special effects on physiology which are not seen simply by exercise increases. The three-way link between inflammation, obesity, and cancer risk has been previously established, as I pointed out earlier. For example, obesity has been linked to increased blood levels of a protein called C-reactive protein. When C-reactive protein increases, there are associated increased risks of breast, colon, and lung cancers. Dr. McTiernan randomly assigned 399 overweight and obese postmenopausal women, yes, just women, into one of four groups, dieting plus exercise, dieting only, exercise only, and as a control group, one required not to do either. People assigned to the dieting groups lost a mean of 8 to 11% of their body weight during the study. 
Those assigned to the exercise-only plan lost an average of 2.4%. Blood tests before and after the 12-month trial showed that women assigned to dieting who lost at least 5% of their body weight with or without exercise had substantially greater decreases in levels of inflammatory proteins and cells than the control group. That group showed no change in the inflammatory markers. That result, by the way, clearly suggests that the percent weight loss is the most important indicator of whether there'll be a decrease in inflammatory markers. It seems not to have had anything to do with whether there was just exercising or just diet alone, as the paper suggests in its conclusions. In fact, I'm not entirely sure where McTiernan and company came up with their conclusions given their results. Anyway, the last two stories of the night have a serious cool factor. That was not meant as a pun, but the next story probably has about as cool factor as you can get. Have you ever drunk a milkshake too fast, or done the same with a cold drink, or even ice cream? What inevitably happens is the phenomenon that we all know as brain freeze. If you have never experienced this, then you're welcome to go get a nice cold drink and slug it down quickly, making sure that your upper palate and the back of your throat get thoroughly drenched with the cold liquid while drinking. In many cases, you will quickly induce a headache in your temples. For years now, it's been a mystery how this headache is induced. That is, until now. The results of this research were presented last month at the Experimental Biology 2012 conference in San Diego. Since I know several people who went there, I had access to conference proceedings which described the talk that was presented. The main researcher of the presented work was Dr. Jorge Serrador of Harvard Medical School. For years, medical doctors would tell you that brain freeze was caused by stimulation of the trigeminal nerve by cold food or liquid. Well, now that seems to be pretty much wrong. Serrador's findings are the result of trying to get a better understanding of how migraines work. It was not his goal, as is often the case in science, to discover what causes brain freeze. Serrador had hypothesized that he could more easily study migraines by inducing them with cold liquids. Migraines are notoriously hard to predict and notoriously hard to study. Researchers aren't able to monitor a whole one from start to finish in the lab. They can give drugs to induce migraines, but those can also have side effects that interfere with the results. Brain freeze can quickly and easily be used to start a headache in the lab, and it also ends quickly, which makes monitoring the entire event very easy. Since people who get migraines a lot are more prone to brain freeze, Sarador thought that he'd take advantage of that. The researchers brought on brain freeze in the lab by having 13 healthy volunteers sip ice water through a straw right up against the roof of their mouths. The volunteer raised their hands when they felt the familiar brain freeze coming on and raised them again once it disappeared. Serador said that they monitored the blood flow through their brain using an ultrasound system on the skull. His group saw increased blood flow to the brain through the anterior cerebral artery, which is located in the middle of the brain behind the eyes. That increase in blood and resulting intensification in the size of this artery brought on the pain associated with the brain freeze. When the artery constricted, reigning in the response of the increased blood flow, the pain disappeared. Serador said, quote, the dilation then the quick constriction of this blood vessel may be a type of self-defense for the brain. The brain is one of the relatively important organs in the body, and it needs to be working all the time. 
It's fairly sensitive to temperature, so the widening of the blood vessels might be moving warm blood inside tissues to make sure the brain stays warm, unquote. The brain pain that Serador describes has to do with an increase in pressure because the blood influx into the brain can't be cleared as quickly as the outflow away from the brain during the cooling process. That slow process of movement out could raise the pressure inside the skull and induce pain. As the pressure and temperature in the brain rise, the blood vessel constricts, lowering blood flow and reducing pressure in the brain before it reaches dangerous levels. Serder hopes that this understanding of blood flow and pressure may lead to better headache treatments for migraines. The last story of the night has to do with a new way to control how cloned genes may be turned on and off. Whenever I talk about gene regulation in my genetics classes, I explain that there are two basic systems of regulation. First, genes that are constitutively regulated. That means that they're simply left on and expressed all the time because they're so important. These genes are sometimes called housekeeping genes because they're required to sort of keep house in a cell. And the second type are genes that are induced to be turned on. That means that some environmental factor, either within the cell or from outside the cell, may turn the gene expression on and off. Examples would be if you have a specific inducer chemical present like a sugar, like lactose or glucose, then the gene would be turned on. Another example would be if you would turn on your gene when the levels of the product produced by that gene got too low. Other controls may be entirely environmental, like a metal ion, such as copper, may turn the gene on. There are even genes in animals and plants that respond to light and get turned on and off by that. Well, although it does not exist in nature as a natural regulatory system, Dr. Jeffrey Friedman and his collaborators at Rockefeller University have genetically engineered cells to secrete insulin in response to radio waves. Their results were published in the journal Science last month. That is so awesomely futuristic that it sends the SF fanboy and me into virtual paroxysms. Friedman and his team used antibodies to target iron oxide nanoparticles to a temperature-sensitive channel. Upon exposure to the appropriate radio frequency, the nanoparticles that were tethered to the channel heated up and spurred the channel to open and allow calcium ions to flow into the cell. Then the scientists put a modified version of the human insulin gene under the control of a calcium-responsive promoter into those cells. So the calcium influx generated by the warmed nanoparticles produced expression of the insulin gene and insulin release from the cell. Finally, they showed that their system worked in vivo by injecting cells under the skin of nude mice with all the requisite components in them. When the mice were exposed to the appropriate radio frequencies, they experienced a significant increase in plasma insulin and a significant decrease in blood glucose. This awesomely new system could be a huge clinical boon because it could allow the addition of a drug or enzyme into deep tissues, which is not that easy in humans and animals. Low and medium radio frequencies can penetrate deep tissues, allowing the promoter to be turned on by those. Friedman's technique has several advantages. First, it doesn't require a permanent implant. Second, just localized cells can be modified to express. And finally, those radio waves can reach into deep tissues. 
the method could one day be used to activate any calcium-dependent process or to treat deficiencies of proteins that are difficult to synthesize or deliver, especially those needed in the central nervous system. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Don't drink your iced coffee too fast this spring and summer, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, sir, what can I say? Thank you. As ever, always a pleasure, Squire. We had a little bit of trouble getting this one over to to yesterday, but it's all there now. Jim, thank you so much. Main fiction tonight is by John Ingold, Sleepers. Give you a little heads up for John Ingold. Born in 1981, he's best known as the author of interactive fiction works. He's also written a number of plays, short stories and novels. He's been nominated for many XYZZY awards and has won several. He is the co-founder of Ingle, a company that makes interactive stories. This story, Sleepers, first came out in Interzone 234 in the May-June 2011. John has also had out the history of Polly V, Overwater, Sleepers, this one, and the fall of City of Silver. This story is narrated by Joe Samargo. Joe has came on board Starship Sofa and has been a fine addition to her ranks of narrators. And Joe has, he's coming along to the narrator's workshop as well, so there you go. How exciting. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present Sleepers by John Ingold. Sleepers. He paused to let the words sink in. From Centauri. I don't know, John Luke. I smiled the same steady smile I'd been wearing since I first took the chair across from his. My hands were folded around my beads. I usually found them to be a great comfort in the face of such decrepitude, but with John Luke, I pushed them around with more patience. No one's been to Centauri for a hundred years. One hundred and seven. The last colonists escaped Independence Day 81. I bet you didn't know that. Independence Day... One of their jokes at our expense. This could have been any of the times we sat talking together in his little room in the chateau. John Luke was old, and old men always tell the same stories, as though their lives had been crystallized down around a few grains of thought. Pearls of wisdom, they call them. By the time they were let out of the dog pen after coming down, he curled his lip where a younger man would have shaken his head. They lasted another three years. Enough to see the Senate take the light gate to bits. That was the real end of it. That was what put my grandma away. I heard they were rebuilding the gate. The Indians are saying that, are they? The new premier. He harumphed, like a horse blowing out air. <sighs> they say that every time. I've seen out thirty premiers. I saw Django and Maynard and Hwak Nguyen. No one remembers him. And they always pull a vote on the light gate, and they always vote no. This time is different. We've got the technology for it now. He chuckled and swirled his glass. The ice cubes inside rattled like dice. Won't matter. Never matters. Right now some Koreans building the next big thing that a spaceman can't be without. And no premier wants to go down in history as the premier who opened the light gate when the newest thing wasn't ready. 
That's what they'll say. You'll see. He threw back his drink. For as long as I knew him, which was less than a year, he always drank deep because he was a man who did nothing with less than all his heart. Perhaps it dulled the pain. I understand. You're saying the risk is always too great, even if there isn't any risk at all. I pushed another beat around. That argument makes me think of Pascal's wager, that any intelligent man must believe in God because the cost of false belief is lower than the cost of false disbelief. This Pascal was no gay boy then. No African. No woman. Sounds like he was barely alive. He drew one finger over his head to indicate my condition. Same as you. I'm alive, I replied, still smiling. And a Christian, same as Pascal. I don't know what you are. What are you? You're some kind of freak. Are there more like you? A few hundred, you know that. Should have cleaned you all out at birth, he said uncharitably and refilled his glass from the bottle by his elbow. I lowered my head slightly, which makes the damaged skin on the back of my neck crease and stretch. Sometimes it splits. I spend much of my life sitting still. I'm sure you know, John Luke. When the reactors gave out, no one knew. He cut me off with an unhappy shrug. Can't you take a joke? The chateau is an old manor house where they send people suffering from that one disease which is still incurable and unfalteringly terminal. The residents are fed and cleaned by machines and can often go for a month or more without seeing another human being anywhere except the stream. The abbot calls old age a prison for the innocent, and while I'm not sure John Luke was wholly innocent, he, and the others in the other rooms, did not deserve such lonely confinement. I'd tried to visit each at least once a fortnight, and had been doing so ever since I was made a full initiate and allowed outside Abbey grounds. It was my place in life, the only good I could do. But I visited John Luke more than the rest. He had some quality, some force of personality, that meant I came away from our meetings richer than I went in, no matter how little we had in common. The Holy Book has a quote for everything and everybody, Here is John Luke as I remember him. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Revelations 1.12-16 Did I tell you why I never had any children? I laughed. I can imagine a reason. He puffed his cheeks with annoyance. Monks shouldn't make jokes like that. What kind of monk are you? We were friends. He enjoyed it when I spoke with careless irreverence. I think being insulted by a freak appealed to his sense of macabre. For you to have had any children, I said sagely, means to have convinced someone for at least an hour or so, he smirked. That under your miserable exterior is a pure soul. I can see it, of course. But then, I'm trained. A pure soul, he giggled, half spat. You're a crackpot. I shook my head carefully. You shouldn't drink, John Luke. It makes you quick to anger. 
I'm a hundred and eleven, he growled. I'm the oldest man in France. This stuff keeps me alive. It's my deuterium, he grinned lustily. And the robots that spy on me here can't smell. I kept my face completely level. Are the robots from Centauri? Don't be a fool, he snapped. They make them in Taiwan. They don't have any robots in Centauri. They did everything by hand. His obsession with the lost colony on Centauri came from his grandma, whom he claimed to remember as a passionate, powerful woman, even though he could not have been more than three years old when she died of multiple cancers over a century ago. As a child, he'd been given her logs and photos to play with, along with the name badge from her pod suit and a shard taken from a Centauri cliff face to make way, he said, for the first strut of the first biodome. And since he had no children himself, there'd been no one for him to pass these trinkets on to. They'd stayed with him, growing in importance, I think, as his world shrank to the size of a single room. You know, John Luke, I must have visited you ten times and you've never told me where you were born or anything about your job or your life. I'm not infertile, he answered huffily, if that's what you mean. I smiled again. And how can you be so sure if you've never had any children? I'd never been rude to anyone until I met John Luke. He fell about laughing, and we laughed together at the foolish sin of pride that, despite his age, still held such an iron grip on him. I knew from the nurses that as a younger man he had been a repairman for factory robots. Not skilled work, but physically demanding, and you could still see it in the shape of his skin, in the ropes of muscle that hung around his neck and arms. I have often reflected that he must have been powerful once, an unreasonable brute. I could scarcely believe he had not left children in a score of broken homes. That he was now as charitable and forgiving as he was seemed to me a miracle, further proof of the inner light that shines within all of us. I'm not, he insisted, still thinking about his fecundity. Not like you. I passed a palm over the scabbed and scaled surface of my head. I had long since taken to lowering my hood when alone with John Luke. I am what I am, I said. As a man thinks, so is he. Proverbs. No better than a trained chimp, he scolded, which made a change from him calling me a lizard. When I was a boy, the church had force. It had lungs. Where it went, people followed. Then our way is better. Now we follow where people go. Damn you and all your kind, he answered flatly and picked up his glass to rattle the ice. He always rattled the ice to disguise the way his hands shook. I moistened my tongue with a little soya and checked the time. I always spent longer with John Luke than was fair, but the other residents talked of nothing but their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, as if they'd long ago parceled up their souls into little pieces and handed them out for safekeeping. And those thoughtful enough to ask after my own family in return were always made afraid by the answer, as if my own history might somehow leak out and erase theirs. Should I go now, John Luke? There was a long pause and he didn't answer, so I rose quietly from my chair, raised my cowl, and left him to his sleep. The colony on the fifth world of Centauri was humankind's first attempt at reaching out into the depths of space beyond the light gate. 
That it was even tried seems now like the most supreme arrogance. In a rocket held together by rivets and solder, and powered by fire and magnets alone, 15,000 souls were packed into zip pods that offered no more protection against the inertial forces between dimensions than if they'd wrapped themselves in bubble wrap. They took with them a few vats of chemicals, a bank of frozen spores, and as much of the sum of human writing as they could fit onto their library drives. Whatever they needed to know once out there they had to carry with them. There was no way to communicate with Earth once on the other side. Probes had been engineered to go through and then return, and they had brought back with them hints of a chain of worlds, but how suitable any was for colonization was unknown. The logic ran that whoever had built the gate to Earth must have come themselves from an Earth-like world, but if it had turned out that the gate was a link to Venus, then the colony ship would have had to turn around and come straight home. If the ship could even survive two trips through the gate, nothing was certain. The colonists went away for 15,000 different reasons. There's a tape in the lunar time box where every one has a recorded statement, but it makes for dull viewing. Haunting, perhaps, but unrevealing. They speak with a strange, childlike confidence and say nothing of cost or consequence or risk. Watching, one starts to wonder if they knew themselves why they were going. I want them to name a street after me, says one. Well, this'll show Dad, says another. What with the net and the wire, says a third. I feel like there's nothing left on Earth I haven't seen, so... John Luke's grandma, he told me, had said she wanted to know if everywhere in the universe was the same, or if somewhere could truly be different. I could never be satisfied with my life on this ball of rock if I'd turned down the chance to see another, she explains to the tape. This attitude seems alien to me, like choosing to become a Zoroastrian simply because that faith is undersubscribed, or like choosing to be born as I was instead of properly formed and whole. But it is a mode of thought I've often seen among the scientists I have met, as though their constant exposure to generalization leads them inevitably to the point of desperate nihilism. After all, when everything must obey four laws, how can the universe ever surprise and delight us? It seems to me that scientists live in the constant hope and dread of something that will shatter their theories and undermine their models, and in so doing, gift them with something holy and blessedly new. They search and search for contradictions. And yet, so many are so energetic in their resistance of the infinite and wondrous mysteries and contradictions of God that might make them whole. No matter. God, I am sure, watches all this with patience and compassion. Like a scientist himself, he has seen it all before. Eyes, John Luke says. I forget when. They danced to attract our eyes, looking for a way in. I watch his own as he speaks. They are powerful but sad, brilliant but raging. He cannot forgive himself for being so old, so repetitious, so unable to adapt and move on, so changeless. No doubt he sees my pity, but it does him no good. Sleepers, he says. Do you see? From the point of view of Earth, the mission was a curious anticlimax. 
All over the world, people clustered around their streams to watch the launch and held their collective breath as smoke, then fire, then supercharged ion streams burst from the base of the tiny ship. They willed the vessel into the skies, and when two days later it reached the gate, those on the night side of the planet watched through binoculars as light bloomed in the dark center irised open. And then, nothing. The plan was for the colonists to return if they had to, and otherwise to send word once settled, first after six months, and again after two years. The difficulty of sending a device back through the gate made more frequent contact prohibitively difficult. Again, under such circumstances, it seems incredible that they went at all. So six months went by before the first message in a bottle was received. The light gate opened for a moment to allow through a tumbling satellite... It was captured by a mining crew off Ceres and leaked onto the stream well before it reached the government's hands. There were pictures of a giant-scale world of aquifiers and blue glass columns and webs and spans of fine crystalline thread. One image lodged in the public eye and came to symbolize the hopes for new earth. The top of a pine tree, silhouetted against a darkening yellow sky, dotted faintly with unfamiliar and as yet unnamed constellations. There were personal messages for the families of the colonists. John Luke's grandmother described the cramped conditions, the group's uncertain mood, sometimes elated, often morose, and the frustrations of getting food crops started when the local soil contained so little nitrogen but so much fluorine and arsenic. There was no mention of the lights, or the centurions themselves, for that matter. There were 28 pregnancies, 12 of which had begun out in space. No one had yet died. I made sure to see John Luke the day after the Senate voted to rebuild the gate. The time for one world politics is over, the Premier announced on the stream, his youthful face airbrushed frame by frame into a beguiling smile, inspiring trust. We are better informed. Our technology is unrecognizably superior to what we possessed over a century ago. We are now in a position to turn those brave footsteps into a blazing trail. Just as our ancestors once crossed great oceans and leapt from Earth to the moon, so will we now reach out into the furthest depths of space and take the next great stride towards humanity's universal destiny. Reactions flooded in. Some pointed to the faltering economy, energy rationing, and the ongoing belligerence in Seja as factors in the Premier's thinking. But most commenters seemed enthusiastic. The mistakes of the past were brushed over. Faulty life supports. Did you know they ran them off fission? They were caught in a sandstorm. They overbred the crops and things mutated. The Centaurans were reduced to mere gremlins in the circuitry, and no one pointed out that these gremlins were now 200 years more advanced as well. Idiots, John Luke declared bitterly, tapping the folder in which he kept his grandma's papers. Do these young people think the world was made for them alone? I was not in the mood for his cynicism. To me, the announcement had been a message of hope. Sometimes we have to make history, I said. New technology meant the stream would be able to carry live footage of Planetfall, and I could hardly wait out the year for those first glimpses of an alien world. And, of course, it was John Luke himself who had inspired such an interest in me. Sometimes we have to make mistakes, you mean. 
Do you really believe in the Centurions, John Luke? No one else seems to. There's nothing to believe or not believe. My grandma saw them. And what did she see? They lived in crystals. They're made of light. She saw them watching her, following her around. Following her, like shadows? No, he said. Monks should never attempt irony. It is usually misunderstood. And then there were her missing hours. He paused to let his hook spin on its line. I reached over and poured him a bourbon. Missing hours? It's all here, he tapped his folder. A lot of the colonists reported things, but my grandma proved it. She was doing some experiments in the lab. She lost three hours between one observation and the next. She must have fallen asleep. All those chemicals. She went on to make a study, he continued doggedly. The only study of the Centurions ever made. When they landed, the government made her hand over all copies. That's how important it was. And she did hand them over. All except the one she didn't give. The one in her head. He tapped his temple. Three years later, when they took apart the gate and she was so ill, she wrote everything down and left it to me. I'm the world's greatest expert now. The only one outside the Senate house who knows. I see. I know what you're thinking. Don't think it. My grandma had no imagination. She never made anything up. She was a woman made of facts. Pure, hard facts. Same as I am. You never hear me telling stories. Not her and not me. I smiled and pushed a bead around my rosary. Why don't you tell me all about them then? Then there can be two experts. Amphibious, he replied, shivering with enthusiasm. That was her genius. They live in crystals, but also in gases. That's how they move about. And they live for centuries, maybe forever. They're active in twilight. During the day, they're still and feed on sunlight. Let me tell you how they breed. And so, for a half an hour, he came wholly to life, and his gleaming eyes were light gates themselves, tunneling out of the dull room to the surface of another world. I listened, and his words drew pictures in my mind. It was like lying in the abbey grounds as a child, and watching the clouds form into creatures I had never seen and had no names for. How much time had passed, I had no notion. I heard him coughing, and then he finished. And that's how they killed them off, one by one. He must have seen me react as if I'd came back into myself, and he misread it as distrust. Don't doubt it. One by one, until only twenty came home. I shook my head to clear the cobwebs. To cover my inattention, I said... I can't believe in these demons of yours, John Luke. God makes no such creatures. And the only place the devil put evil was inside our own hearts. He shot me a mocking smile and jerked a thumb at the stream on the wall. It was still playing the premier's speech on a rolling loop. You'll see. I promise you. We'll watch the landing together, and you'll have to say, John Luke, you were right. For all my goddamn learning and praying and virtue, I should have listened. I'd like to watch it with you. 
You think I won't make it that long? You watch me. I'm too old to die now. Why are you smiling, you vulture? John Luke, I'm afraid you might be right. When they open that gate, he said, you'll see. They've been waiting for us to do it, you know. I told you, didn't I? They have sleepers. What else would they be waiting for except the gate? On the day the repair shuttle launched, I arranged with the chateau authorities to take John Luke out to see it. They made me sign a form for him like he was a library book, taking legal responsibility for his health and waiving any rights I might prove to have in his will for the duration of the trip. They also wanted my credit so that they could fine me a month's fees and lost income if he died. I have no account, of course, so I gave them the credit of the monastery and crossed myself for luck. Then they helped me lift him, light as an eggshell, into a chair which we wheeled into the service elevator. It was only big enough for one, so he rode alone down to the goods entrance, and I found him, parked by the chateau's loading drone between boxes of frozen food and rolls of plastic sheets. He was grinning like a loon. He wore dark glasses and a hat against the sun. We traveled by taxi to the station, and then by floating train over the snow-capped Pyrenees, the views left me awestruck. I had never been outside Lyons before, but of course I was originally conceived from stocks housed near the Lisbon offshore reactor core, and as every shimmering peak floated away beneath us, I felt strangely like I was returning home. John Luke, on the other hand, was more interested in our fellow passengers. Coffee brown guys in shirts and white trousers, and women of all ages with pill pallid skin and head scarves. They wore no makeup. <laughs> Not the way I remember Spanish ladies, he snickered dirtily, talking in as loud of voice as he liked. This whole world is going to the dogs, Raphael. The whole nine yards of it. We'd brought his bourbon along in an old mouthwash bottle. I told him to be quiet and to take a swig, and prayed that his liver would last the day. He must have understood the look on my rough face as he grumbled. Don't you worry about me, brother. I told you keeps me alive. John Luke, the liquor. Lizard idiot! Why don't you ever understand what I'm saying? What kind of advert for religion are you when you're so dumb? I'm a child of the hurricanes, I said. I'm the best advert for religion, or the worst, there could possibly be. I'll show you something, then. Put your god back in his hole. I've waited this long, but I'll show you. He harumphed then took a deep draw of mouthwash and exhaled a rough alcoholic breath as though he was the dragon of the two of us. I waited for something to happen, but nothing did. He looked around the carriage to see if anyone had dared to disapprove. One lady was frowning, so he bared his remaining teeth and hissed, I'm a hundred and eleven, you know. The train glided silently on. In his eyes, behind the glasses, the light of his soul was dancing vibrantly, alive with childish glee, and I couldn't help but be happy to see it, even if he was a menace. For the launch, one can do no better than this. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into the ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Matthew 13.2 Though I also like... These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep from the book of Psalms.
We were on the Sierra in good time, six hours before takeoff, what we call T-360M. The crowd already stretched out from the barrier fences for a good few miles in every direction, and there were boats gathering off the coast as well. I'd written to the spaceport authority the week before to ask if John Luke, as a descendant of an original colonist, could have a place reserved in one of the viewing galleries, and had received a formal rejection thanking me for my interest. Scribbled below was a note pointing out that there were nearly 80,000 direct descendants on file, and so they'd been forced to limit VIP places to business leaders and statesmen. I told John Luke, but his reply was only, See? They have a file on us. We rolled our way slowly over the scrub, picking a winding path between circles of people talking and eating and singing and dancing together. The mood was familiar and welcoming, as if we'd all known each other once a long time before. I could have spent a happy few hours wandering between the groups, leading prayers for the success of the mission, but instead I listened to John Luke repeat his old stories in his brassy monotone. Occasionally, people would turn their heads to listen, but never for long. It was radiation that killed the last colony, one man shouted at us. They didn't have no anti-beta shields. My cousin works where they're making them now, said business is looking up. Radiation? John Luke replied contemptuously. Did you ever hear of radiation that could get into your body and take hold of you? Did you ever hear of radiation with soldiers fighting a war? Did you ever hear of radiation using spies? I still don't understand about the spies, John Luke, I said quietly as I wheeled him on, hoping to calm him down a little so that he wouldn't have a heart attack. Even if they'd somehow brainwashed the surviving colonists, everybody from that mission is dead. Long, long dead. There's nothing left of them. All he answered was, How many direct descendants did you say they had on file? The launch, when it finally happened, was as breathtaking a thing as I'd ever witnessed. It began as a spark and then bloomed like a flower into a fireball the size of a mountain that even from our great distance made us sweat with its heat. The metal dart at its peak, a tiny shining dot, seemed to move impossibly slowly as it clambered into the air. The sound reached us much later than the sight, then later still there was the smoke that stung our eyes and left a taste of oil in our throats, and by the time it had cleared the craft with its five human beings inside was gone. As one, we craned our necks to trace the vapor trail away to where it seemed to disappear behind the moon. All except John Luke, that is, who could no longer lift his head without assistance. He looked out to sea, and smiled his cruel and selfish smile, and drank in rhythmic motions from his mouthwash bottle. And then it was over, and there was nothing left to see, except tired and fractious people all a long way from home. John Luke was as eager to leave as the rest, but I made us wait, partly to avoid the cues and partly to pray for the men and women in the ship. I knew John Luke expected none of them to survive. He was watching for the rocket to tumble out of the sky and into the ocean. I called on God to challenge his certainty, to prove that creation was a place for hope and goodwill. I did not believe in demons, not even the ones from Centauri that John Luke claimed to be possessed by. He died without incident a few weeks later. I was allowed to see the body and deliver the last rites that I assured the wardens he had requested, and there he was, slumped down in his chair with his bourbon bottle and a biscuit in his lap.
All the fight had gone out of him. He looked shrunken and brittle, smaller than I'd ever known him to be, as though only his breath had been keeping his bones from collapsing in on one another. He was a hundred and eleven, I told the mortician and the doctor as they lifted him onto a stretcher as gently as if he were a kite made of tissue paper and matchsticks, as if the slightest gust of wind might have taken him away. He might have been the oldest man in the country. He believed it was because of the Centaurans. He thought he had one inside of him, keeping him alive. The mortician smiled and shook her head. His records say 84. He looks plenty older, but that's just collagen damage. I'd guess he worked with robots. They used to leak anti-betas all the time. Poor guy. He's probably sterile and riddled with cancer. Might even have glowed in the dark. Safety was that bad 30, 40 years ago. Not lowering my hood, I nodded. The scales on my neck rustled. I know. I looked over at John Luke, expecting a cackling belittlement, but he was silent, ashamed. I left him to his sleep, taking his grandma's folder of notes and photos with me. Somewhere above, or below, or somewhere... The light gate had been realigned, and its huge solar batteries were refilling after more than a century of drain. It had not yet been switched on. There was a rolling ad on the stream looking for applicants for the Mayflower too. I was young, unattached, healthy enough, in my way. I could look after the spiritual needs of a diverse group. I spoke English and Nuovo Latina and enough Cantonese to christen, marry, and commend souls to heaven. I was confident I would at least get an interview, and there I could show my true value, that I knew as much as anybody about the planet beyond the gate, its climate and strange topography, its fauna, cycles, dangers and wonders. I knew about the previous colony, its failures, what it had achieved and left behind. From so long talking with John Luke, I could picture those places as if I'd seen them myself. I walked crystal fields in my dreams. This was the chance I had been waiting for, to leave behind the abbey that had sheltered and contained me for so long. It would be like going home. Or so it seemed to me. Damn those eyes. Those passionate, fiery eyes. Without the use of a single rotting muscle, the old man had still buried the idea of Centauri so deeply in my head I could no longer remember who or what I'd been before I met him. The abbey seemed nothing but a curious dream the kind that is utterly captivating, but long gone by sunrise. I wonder what Earth will look like when I see it from the gate. Here's something suitably apocalyptic to please the old man's ghost. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Acts 2.17 And those are my reasons, good or bad, for it seems to me now that we do not choose the things we believe in, even if we spend our whole lives playing out their consequences. Ideas choose us. They spread and breed, surviving age and change. They live strange lives all their own. The gate is ready, ready to be opened, except we do not say opened. We say, woken up.
There you go. Don't forget, copyright is John's. John, thank you so much. And Joe, thank you. Next up is, and finally is, first chapters, it is Time Slingers. Hello, Starship Sofa fans. My name is Jay Shear. I am the author of Time Slingers Season 1, which is an illustrated time travel adventure serial. Nathan Sheck is the illustrator and also my co-conspirator. Time Slingers Season 1 is available now on Amazon.com. The print version is actually $9.99, and the Kindle version is a great deal at only $2.99. Today, my friend Zach Linton, author of Roman X, will be reading the first chapter, episode 1-1 through episode 1-3. So we hope that you really enjoy it, and if you do, head on over to Amazon.com and you can pick it up today. Thanks. Episode 1, November 22nd, 1963, Dallas, Texas, Undisclosed Warehouse. Operation Yamoto, a bold step forward for XLS phase travel operations. Complex, detailed, and ambitious, a strike at the heart of the Union's future infrastructure. And it was starting with a communication issue. Klein tapped the side of his data pad. It had been 18 hours since his last contact with command. He'd heard nothing since. You sure about this? asked the young man. Disheveled clothes and unkempt hair, suspicious and misguided enough to be the perfect prey, he was the first cog in the XLS's fast-growing machine. He eyed the bolt-action rifle Klein removed from his briefcase. The future needs to change, said Klein. After today, you'll be a hero. Klein moved to the window. Anxious onlookers lined the streets below. Excitement coursed through the city streets. He didn't have much time. The motorcade was close. Still no response from command. The data pad's transmission strength was spotty and unreliable, which reaffirmed that his concern was valid. Disrupted transmission strength could mean any number of problems, including molecular teleportation complications. If that were true, Klein was stuck in Dallas. Outside, the murmur of the crowd grew louder. Klein pushed the rifle toward the young man. Load it. Take your position. A former Marine, the young man handled the rifle like a trained marksman. The XLS's background checks, psychological modeling, and brain pattern research had netted a perfect subject. Klein had spent the last three days feeding his paranoia. He was ready. Klein engaged the data pad. Command, do you copy? The hair on the back of Klein's neck bristled. He listened. Nothing but the beat of his own heart. And then... His data pad buzzed. Mission compromised. Union agents on approach. Abort. The young man took a knee at the window and waited for Klein's order. Faint thuds could be heard coming from the stairwell. Klein grimaced. He couldn't stop now. Eliminate the mark, Klein commanded. He bolted to the front door and yanked it open. The footfalls on the nearby staircase grew louder. His data pad showed no signs of incoming heat signatures. Subdivision Timeslingers had found him. Friday, November 22nd, 1963, 12.35 p.m., Dallas, Texas, Texas School Book Depository. Blam! One shot. Blam! Blam! Followed by two more. Hector reached the sixth floor first. No sign of the XLS agent. The shots had been fired from somewhere nearby. Across the hall, a door stood ajar. Hector and Jack took positions on either side of the doorframe. 
Three, two, one. Jack shoved his foot through the door. A young man carrying an old bolt-action rifle rose from his spot at the window. He swung the rifle around. Jack dove aside. Hector's gun flared. Green energy snagged the man's torso, and arcs of lightning spread through his body. He gasped and dropped the gun as he lost all muscle control. He stumbled to his knees. Hector rushed to the window. Mayhem had erupted in the city streets below. Where'd he go? asked Jack. The shooter stared. Where is he? The man's eyes darted to the side. He squinted. Don't know what you're talking about. I'm alone. Jack scanned the young man's eyes, a positive match. He showed Hector, who engaged his communicator. Subject found. Oswald Lee Harvey. XLS footprint evident. This is the guy they targeted. Hector peered out the window at the grisly scene below. Mass hysteria spread like a swarm of locusts. He set his jaw and frowned. The union had failed. Hector headed for the door and Jack followed close behind. A quick sweep of the sixth floor revealed nothing. The clamor downstairs grew. Oswald made a laborious, wobbly dash for the exit. Jack moved to stop him, but Hector grabbed his upper arm. Let him go. There's nothing more we can do here. June 2nd, 2147. Colonel Taylor's office, Union Subdivision. His data pad buzzed. Colonel Taylor jumped out of his chair and grabbed it. The message read, Mission failure. JFK assassinated. A bold move by an enemy that grew more intrepid with each strike. A decade ago, time travel was still science fiction. Now the past was considered the most critical covert battleground since the moon. Time, or phase travel, was building its own list of unknown heroes. Time slingers. Agents who fought their way through history to protect the present. And today, the wrong guys had won. The data pad buzzed again. Incoming call from Brigadier General Ethan Falco. Sir. Is this a mistake? No, sir. Falco swore. A long silence followed. And then, this has far-reaching implications. What happened? We're not sure yet. What were they after? This just for show, or is there something more? I don't have the details yet. My gut tells me this is only a preliminary strike. For goodness sake, Bill, a president. If they can pull this off, what else can they do? Taylor ground his teeth. They've never attempted anything this bold before. So they caught us with our pants down, is that it? Clean this mess up. The XLS is gaining ground politically. They bank on chaos. This is going to give them another foothold. We can't let this get out. Don't let something like this happen again. When can we go back? We're still running scenarios. The security risk is off the charts. Get it under control. I don't have time to hold your hand. I've got other things that need my full attention. Send me a report and tie up your loose ends. Yes, sir. Falco ended the call. Taylor fumed. Not more than three seconds later, the colonel's data pad buzzed a third time. He grabbed it and growled. What is it? We just picked up another XLS transfer signal, sir. They're moving again. All right. That was Time Slingers, Season 1, the first chapter, read by Zach Linton. Thanks again, Zach. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, head on over to Amazon.com and pick up the book, either in print or in the Kindle. And also, I uh, wanted to make you aware of our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Timeslingers. Also, our Twitter which is at Timeslingers. Thanks for listening.
There you go. Time Slingers. Do pop over. Got it on the front of the website. If you want a link to Time Slingers, just pop over there. And that's it. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. Do consider, if you want to, think about coming over to do the Narrator's Workshop. Like I say, it's on the 10th of June, and we have, well, I've told you who we've got, but it was just nice to see you. If you want to narrate, that would be fantastic for Starship Sova, for Tales to Terrify, the new Crime City Central, and Protect Project Pulp. Mm-hmm. Don't forget as well, logos, if you have that little artistic flair and you want to design two cutting-edge logos for Starship Sofa's new shows, drop us a line, starshipsofa at gmail.com. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.